Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Brian Dury from the International Myeloma Foundation and Cedars-Sinai Outpatient Cancer Center in Los Angeles, Dr. Thomas Martin from the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, Dr. Philippe Moreau from the University Hospital Hotel Dieu, Nantes, France, Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Dr. Jesus San Miguel from the Universidad de Navarra in Pamplona, Spain. They will be discussing various patient case examples posed during a recent symposia on the optimal management of patients with multiple myeloma that was held during the annual hematology meeting in 2021. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Adapting Clinical Practice to a Rapidly Changing Therapeutic Landscape in Multiple Myeloma. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, an expert commentary, and an on-demand webcast from the live event, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. I'm going to discuss with you a challenging case. This is a 51-year-old asymptomatic woman that presented with an IgA kappa paraprotein in a routine exam. The end component was small, 1.2 grams per deciliter, 12 grams per liter. Rest of the exams were normal, but not X-rays were done, no bone marrow. Three, the diagnosis of NGAS was established with a follow-up every six months. And there was a slight continuous increase in the end component. I saw this patient three years later, and I decided to perform a more careful exam. At that time, the end component was 2.3. The free light chain ratio was 35. There was vengeance proteinuria, half a gram in 24 hours. In Bolmaro, there were 32% plasma cell. Almost all the plasma cells were clonal, 97% of the plasma cells. And also, the pay, uh, there was translocation for 14 in the majority of the cells. The CT was negative, but the MRI showed one focal lesion. Therefore, a diagnosis of a smoldering was established. Then, here are the questions. In your current clinical practice, what would you recommend for this 51-year-old patient? Yourself and myself, we recommended a triplet plus transplant. And Tom was unsure, and Vincent recommended a lenalidomide combination. Uh, maybe we could ask uh, Vincent first uh, to comment, what treatment would you actually recommend at this time in clinical practice? This is a tough case because uh, the patient's not just high-risk smoldering myeloma with more than two grams M spike, more than 20 for the light chain ratio, and more than 20% for the bone marrow plasma cells, the 20-20 criteria. Any two of the three is enough to call somebody as high-risk smoldering and that's the group that I recommend LEN or LENDEX rather than observation. This patient has all three, and in addition has a 414, which is a high risk factor, and in addition has one focal lesion on MRI. So in these kind of circumstances, we actually have better data than what I would have had if, I just, if somebody just told me the first three variables. That's why the IMWG paper where you have the scoring system comes into view. And when you score the patient here, this patient's risk of progression in two years is 80%, almost the same as what we have done for reclassifying asymptomatic patients to multiple myeloma. So 
This is a tough one, and I think for this particular patient, it would be very reasonable, and that half of you chose the standard myeloma therapy that with transplant and everything else. But in general, for high-risk smoldering myeloma, if you ask me, it's better to do LEN or LENDEX rather than observation, and that's coming from two randomized trials. Uh, you will not be able to catch the progression even if you follow the people monthly. Whether it's better to treat LEN-LENDEX or a myeloma-like therapy is not known. I don't know the answer, and that's why we are doing a randomized control trial. It's almost halfway accrued. It's available in the United States, DARA-RD versus RD. So if you're really torn, just put the patient on that trial. That would be my choice. Thanks, Vince. So, Tom, maybe you can comment. You were unsure. Uh, do you want to explain your uh, uncertainty? This is a very difficult case. And I would say I have two issues that this case brings up, and we talk about it actually in our rounds at UCSF all the time, whether to start somebody with high-risk smoldering myeloma or not. One of the issues is we like to see the movie, to continue to see the movie rather than you know individual snapshots. So this is a person I would follow. I wouldn't really follow six months. I would follow closer, maybe every two months, every three months. But the other issue is that if we start therapy now, the patient never met criteria for IMWG diagnosis of active myeloma. In almost every trial that we have in relapse refractory disease requires that they have the diagnosis of active myeloma at some point during, you know, during their stay. So I probably would watch them a little bit longer. If I am gonna start therapy on these people, I would start therapy with an aggressive regimen, just like everybody said, with you know, triplet or quadruplet induction therapy, transplant, and treat them like they had active multiple myeloma, aggressive multiple myeloma. So Tom, you do bring up a, a point. If a patient with smoldering myeloma is treated and then they relapse, you know, what do we call that? Depend. If there is a biochemical relapse, he can continue as in a smoldering, but if they develop crap, it's myeloma. Right, right. So if it's a biochemical relapse, uh, uh, I think one of the points Tom is making is that it might be difficult to, to fit that patient into a treatment protocol. Yeah, but if it's a biochemical relapse, in any case, you, can, you will not be able to include as active myeloma. Exactly, exactly. But I so, think most uh, of the people you'd pick up on biochemical, because you're following closely now, you're following closely while you're giving them treatment, you're going to pick them up biochemically before they're going to hopefully have symptoms, et cetera. So that's my conundrum. And I think both ways are actually appropriate. When I saw this patient, for me, it was a surprise because it apparently was an MGAS, but when I evaluated, and looking back to the end component, in the last six months, the end component has increased more than 0.5 grams in the last six months. And this patient was going very soon to progress into active disease with one focalition. Uh, in fact, the patient was a bit reluctant to start treatment. And three months later, he started with pain and there was a second focalization. I didn't mention that because uh, I wanted to keep the case as a, a, a smoldering case. Uh, but my personal recommendation is for a doctor that don't want to treat by any reason is at least in this type of patients to do a very close follow-up yeah. every right. two months. And if you have an evolving pattern, Please don't wait because you are only favoring a more resistant clone. Right. And I think myeloma is a very aggressive disease just to wait for that. And another comment that I want to make, totally agree with uh, Vincent, 
in the majority of smoldering patients, when I high risk or ultra high risk, we, we decide to treat, I prefer to go for Glendex or something like that. But if it's young, that's his case, I propose her to go to the trial. To echo uh, your point, Jesus, I fully agree. I will do a follow-up every two months and not six months. And so that's why I was unsure about the treatment as well, because you are proposing a treatment or not uh, until the diagnosis of an active myeloma. But now we have also the slim crab. And if the patient is fulfilling the slim crab diagnosis, maybe we, we can treat before an active symptomatic right. myeloma. That's also something. And when you are looking at your patient case, in fact, I did calculate the score of your patient according to the paper that was published by Marie V. And this specific patient, in fact, had a score of two for the free light chain, a score of uh, three for the M-spike, a score of three for the percentage of plasma cells, and a score of two as well for fish, because he had a 414 translocation, that's a score of two. So overall, the score was 10. And according to your paper and to your classification, when you have a total risk score of 10, your risk of progression at two years is 48%. So that's not, that's not 80%. That's, uh, so, so that's why I'm still unsure. You know, that, that's not that simple. So your case was a very difficult one for sure, Jesus. Maybe we need that 0.2 uh, plasma cells in the blood to tip the balance. So in response to Tom's comment, I just want to clarify again. We did this experiment, and let's not forget that. The ECOG study, the Spanish study, in ECOG, United States, we randomized people to observation versus treatment with LEN. Patients were followed monthly. The physicians knew the M-spike changing everything. Yet, in the high-risk smoldering myeloma, there was a 90% reduction in end-organ damage with lenalidomide therapy. And in my experience, you never catch the progression in time. The progression happens in between visits. So if you are going to say, I'll watch the patient carefully and I'll catch it before it happens, that experiment was done and it failed. Our physicians in the United States are not able to catch it in time. Same thing in Spain. And so important to say, point, keep important saying point. that we can catch it in time misses the point that we've done the experiment. Uh, let me add one point, Philippe. Uh, the, the score in this patient was 10 and was true, but in addition, it has a focal issue. And Benjamin's yeah. proteinuria of more than 500. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> this patient, as Vincent has guessed, has over 80% probably risk of progression. Then let me, for the audience, to make a comment. In, because I think it's very important. In the Cesar trial, out of 126 patients, 36 were screening failures. And 77% of these screening failures were due to bone disease, lytic lesions, that in the conventional X-ray were not visualized. In the smoldering case with the 220, not to treat, please do the best possible evaluation of the patient. Yeah, yeah, fully, fully agree. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we need to move on. I will actually turn it over to you uh, now, Philippe, for uh, the case discussion for topic two, current therapies for newly diagnosed myeloma, starting with transplant eligible and then moving on to transplant ineligible. Thank you, Brian. And this is the patient case, in fact. Uh, the patient is 60-year-old 
uh, with bone pain, anemia, NEM spike of 4.2 gram per deciliter, 30% plasma cells, cytogenetics by fish uh, is showing a translocation 1114 uh, with a whole uh, low dose whole body CT showing diffuse bone lesions. Uh, LDH is normal. The uh, beta 2 mic level is 2.5. So the patient is ISS1, revised ISS1 with a symptomatic multiple myeloma. He's 60. Brian, Tom, and Vincent, a triplet uh, induction with VRD. And for Jesus and myself, we are proposing a quadruplet incorporating daratumumab. So quite interesting, let's say. And we will see, uh, we will discuss these important issues, in fact. So let's speak about now patients that are not eligible for a telugus stem cell transplantation. So this is the patient case, the 74-year-old female with diffuse bone pain, anemia, an M-spike of 5.2 gram, uh, grams per deciliter, 32% of plasma cells, fish analysis, no adverse uh, prognostic factors, diffuse bone uh, lesions on the low-dose whole body CT, but the serum LDH is upper limit of normal. The beta tumic is 5.7, symptomatic myeloma, ISS3, revised ISS3. So what about our experts? What are they proposing? Brian, DRD. Thomas isn't sure. Uh, Vincent, VRD times 8, followed by Lendex until disease progression, SWOC study. And Jesus, VRD times eight, followed by Lendex as well, because that's uh, not available in all centers in Spain. But VMP, there are, there are maintenance, that's the Alcione study, and VMP is very popular, as you know, in Spain. Thank you, Philippe. Well, uh, as you noticed, I did vote for DRD in, in an elderly uh, patient. I'm impressed with the data. It's unfortunate about the cost, but uh, there's no question that the PFS and now the overall survival data are impressive. Vincent, do you want to comment on the pros and cons of uh, VRD versus DRD, for example? Thanks, Brian. So we are talking about the non-transplant population where we are- This, is, in, this is the non-transplant, yes. Correct, where we have a choice between using VRD or DARRD. I think the yes. key is to remember that when we say VRD, we are talking about six months of VRD, and then it's only LEN. So- in terms of convenience, toxicity, and what the patients have to endure, the cost, that's six months of triplet and a monotherapy after that. And you can get four years PFS with that Dr. Dury's trial. With DARA-RD, the results that you see are the results of giving the triplet for five, six years. And that's, you have to take that with what's the extra cost, what's the toxicity, what does daratumumab do to, mono, to antibodies and COVID response, and all those factors, and it's not that straightforward. You cannot compare two phase three trials done in two different decades and say like, oh, DRD is better. So when I look at it in my algorithm, I say either one is okay, recognizing that there are pros and cons that you have to go through with each patient and decide. Cost is not trivial. Cost of daratumumab, even in a country like India, which has a ton of generics of lenalidomide, $150 for lenalidomide in India, $15,000 for lenalidomide in the U.S. But DARA is about the same cost. So 1% of Indians can afford DARA, but 99.9% .9 can afford VRD. So you have to take everything into consideration when we make these calls, and I don't want to make 
just overt declarations that one is the standard of care. I feel e either one is okay. And I don't think you're going to run into a huge survival difference if you gave VRD first and then DERA, or DERA RD first and then V. Tom, uh, maybe you could comment on the question of the triplet versus the quadruplet in the transplant population. Do you want to tackle that? Sure. I do think that the exciting results from DERA VRD is really where we're all going. I think everybody believes that that quadruplet will be frontline therapy for multiple myeloma. The reason I didn't select it is because I can't essentially do it just yet in California because it's not approved by insurers. And it is expensive, like Vincent was just saying. But I think a quadruplet therapy followed by a transplant, followed by a consolidation, and then maintenance is where we're headed in that direction. So I do think a quadruplet's going to win over a, a triplet. And we, there's quite a few phase three trials now in transplant eligible and in transplant ineligible comparing CD38 antibody plus RVD versus RVD. And I will say there's gonna be first data from the German myeloma group using isotuximab RVD versus RVD after induction therapy showing a much higher MRD negativity rate in the quadruplet versus the triplet. And maybe that phase three will be the first one that'll enable us to use CD38s as frontline therapy. So yes, I think it's, it's only natural for us to believe that quadruplet is where we're going. Uh, a follow-on question. There are a number of questions about the duration of therapy. Uh, do you want to just comment on that? Uh, if you follow on in terms of the duration of therapy and what the maintenance should look like. I have quite a few patients actually that we treated on the Griffin study. And I thought the Griffin study was quite easy to administer to patients. They got two years of daratumumab with lenalidomide as maintenance. And then after that, it was kind of dealer's choice. And so I've kept people on lenalidomide as maintenance. So they get two years of DARRF or lenalidomide, and then they're, and my patients are on len maintenance, and they're doing extremely well. So that's what I would propose would be the, the current standard. Jesus, yes. Yeah, I, I have a question for Philippe. KRD, the data is extremely attractive, the forte data, but we have the comparison between VRD versus KRD with no difference, although high-risk patients were excluded. Therefore, how do you conciliate the discrepant results? Oh, that's a difficult question, Jesus, but the patient population was not identical. You know, in the study comparing VRD versus KRD in the U.S., Patients were not supposed to receive stem cell transplantation with many patients that were elderly patients. And uh, that may explain uh, why we have these uh, identical results when comparing VRD and, and KRD. We don't have any head-to-head -head comparison of VRD versus KRD yet in transplant eligible patients with the same number of cycles uh, from four to six prior to stem cell transplantation. So, and you know that in Europe, we are not mentioning KRD as an option prior to stem cell transplantation because this combination is not approved. So that's why I, I mentioned the EHA and ESMO guidelines showing that we can use either VRD or VTD-DARA yet, and a second option, uh, VCD or VTD. So I'd like us to move on now to our next uh, segment. Uh, so Vincent is going to look at the tailoring of management for patients with myeloma in first relapse. And we'll start with a case, a very simple situation that we encounter. 52-year-old patient presents with uh, relapse myeloma, presents with right leg pain. We have a lytic lesion in the femur. 
PET scan shows increased FTG up uptake in the lesion as well as enhancing lesions in the lumbar spine, both humeri and multiple ribs. He was diagnosed in the past with standard risk myeloma four years ago, underwent four cycles of VRD followed by transplant, achieved a CR, and has been on LEN maintenance, 10 milligrams. So symptomatic relapse with actual bony lesions while the patient is on lenalidomide. The current labs show hemoglobin of 11.5, calcium 10.5, creatinine 1.1, M-spike 1.5. Kappa free light chain is 110 milligrams per liter, lambda 10, serum free light chain ratio of 11. Bone marrow plasma cells 40% and deletion 17p present on fish. Okay, clear-cut relapse on LEN maintenance. What would be your preferred first relapse regimen? And so my algorithm for first relapse is really looking at whether somebody is refractory to lenalidomide or not. If the patient's not refractory to lenalidomide, that means the relapse is occurring while they are not taking any maintenance, or maybe they're on five milligrams of lenalidomide or even five milligrams every other day, very low dose, then you can certainly go with daratumumab lendex because the patient's not yet refractory to len, and daralendex in the first relapse based on the Pollux trial, gives you extraordinarily good outcomes in both PFS and overall survival. Of course, there are alternatives. You could use KRD, IRD, or ERD, but DERA-RD gives you the best hazard ratio. But like in this patient who's relapsing while on lenalidomide with symptomatic disease, lytic lesions, and serious problems, patients refractory to len, DERA-KD or ISA-KD, DERA-PD or ISA-PD, because Really, there's no good data to tell me which of those four regimens is better. And I don't think you'll be wrong if you chose any of the four, depending on your circumstance for where you have drug availability, approval, and so on. I will comment that, particularly in the United States, if you compare daratumumab sub-Q and isatuximab, for certain patients, particularly those who weigh 60 kilograms to 65 kilograms or less, Isatuximab could be half as expensive as daratumumab. So please take cost into consideration because I've been an advocate that if you have two or three monoclonal antibodies, it'll spur competition and that competition will reduce prices. But that'll happen only if we are willing to use the cheaper drug. If we are stuck on what we always use, then that won't happen. Companies will reduce cost depending on whether practice is looking at cost as a factor. Uh, so I've put all four, all four look good and you could pick any of them. But what happens if a patient is also refractory to daratumumab? We just heard studies where patients are getting daratumumab lendex as their frontline regimen. So when they relapse, they'll be refractory not only to lenalidomide, but also to daratumumab. And in that situation, uh, carfilzomib-based regimens are my go-to. You could use carfilzomib palmdex if the patient is lenalidomide refractory, or you could use carfilzomib lendex if the patient is still len-sensitive. I leave you with this. I don't think you make a mistake picking any of these great regimens. If you choose one and the patient relapses, you go to the next. I don't think you change the outcome if you chose DERA-KD first and then went to some other KPD or something else later. I think as long as you give the patient all available regimens in a logical fashion to make sure that you've used all the drug classes, you will get similar outcomes. In the last algorithm, you have shown that the CD38 plus KD 
as equivalent as the CD38 plus PD in the land refractory setting. But my personal feeling is that the trials indicate that probably the combination of CD38 with carfilzomib will be better in the land refractory patients. Can you comment on this? No, you're right. And I, and I did that only to be fair in the sense that they haven't been compared head to head. So I don't know the answer, but I tend to agree with you. I think I would personally favor Dara KD as well. But uh, Vincent and Jesus, you are totally right. I think that when we are looking at Ikaya and Apollo, the studies uh, looking at Pomdex Isatuximab and Pomdex Daratumumab, they were proposed for Ikaya in patients with two or more prior lines of treatment. And Apollo, 90% of the patients were also at the time of the second relapse. As opposed to Ikema and Kendor uh, with uh, KD-DARA or KD-Izatuximab, the patient population is not identical and many patients were enrolled at the time of the first relapse. So that's difficult to compare PFS, very good PFS with KD-DARA or KD-Izatuximab versus PD-DARA or PD-Izatuximab with shorter PFS since the patient population were more advanced in the trials looking at POMDEX as a backbone. What do we think about the treatment for biochemical relapse versus uh, clinical relapse? My impression is that when patients relapse biochemically, within a month or two, they will have some clinical feature. And that's why we are a little bit more anxious about treating them. There are some patients who are biochemically relapsing very slowly that you could probably control with just modifying the dose. For example, somebody, for example, you're on DARA-RD, and once they go into DARA once a month, the M-spike slowly starts drifting up, and I've just gone back to more frequent DARA and controlled it rather than change the whole thing. But other than that, right. most of the time, you're just better off changing the regimen. Uh, thank you so much, Vincent. Uh, let's move on to the, the next topic, which is uh, actually myself uh, talking about uh, triple-class refractory uh, myeloma, excluding uh, BCMA-targeted therapies. Uh, we selected a case here, triple-class refractory, a 67-year-old woman who started out with standard-risk IgG-kappa myeloma with some trisomies, deletion 13, but no uh, bad risk uh, cytogenetics. First therapy, uh, Revlimid and Dex with a good uh, PFS. At relapse, uh, treated for a second line with Valcade Cytoxin Dex. And at that point, it was uh, refractory to both imids and uh, proteasome inhibitors. As a third line, uh, DARA was introduced, uh, DARA-POMDEX. Uh, a response was again achieved, uh, but ended up uh, being uh, refractory to uh, anti-CD38. And then as a fourth line received uh, carbfilzomib and DEX. The main thing to be said about this particular patient is uh, that she progressed and was really not in good condition with a low white count, anemic, and some low platelets. And uh, unfortunately, this is a situation that many of us are seeing more and more patients with uh, refractory disease, perhaps not in the best of shape and maybe not eligible to get into many trials, which has become quite an issue uh, for us. So if we look at what actually can we do for this kind of patient in current clinical practice, 
what would be your selection? Myself and Tom, we said a cyclophosphamide-based regimen, but I think, uh, truthfully, that would be used maybe in an effort to have the patient qualify for a BCMA regimen. <laughs> and uh, the others would refer for a BCMA-directed therapy. So the uh, approach to triple-class refractory has uh, really persisted as an unmet need in refractory myeloma. We have venetoclax and selenexor, and then we have the combinations of some traditional chemotherapy regimens. And the selenexor was uh, actually in parallel studied in a variety of combinations, looking for a, a good combination that would work well, looking at Velcade, uh, carfilzomib, uh, pomalidomide, and then daratumumab. And the carfilzomib with actually uh, impressively good results as a combination uh, versus the other regimens. So that uh, carfilzomib, uh, selenexor uh, does have some deeper and higher levels of response. Uh, the Boston regimen uh, we're familiar with, selenexor bortezomib dex. The once a week regimen and the combination with the bortezomib, uh, as Sagarlonial always says, it's, it's as if the bortezomib worked as an elixir for selenexor toxicities, and that the toxicities uh, were, were definitely less uh, in the three drug combination. I think the challenge uh, with selenexor is the toxicity for sure. And uh, this just illustrates the lesser toxicity with the weekly versus the twice weekly uh, dosing. And so uh, uh, for those considering to, to use the selenexor, uh, certainly the once a week is, is something quite important. Venetoclax has such promise in uh, translocation 1114, uh, both as monotherapy and with DEX. With daratumumab, uh, we do have data uh, indicating some good combination results with daratumumab, venetoclax dex, uh, especially in the 1114 population. If the patient happens to be 1114 positive, a triplet uh, could be uh, promising. I don't know if uh, any of our panelists would like to, to comment about the difficulty right now in, in handling such patients with you know, commercially available options. Tom, I don't know if you, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So you know, in this case, this person had rapidly progressive relapse disease, and those patients are very tough to treat. And honestly, it's not universally available any BCMA therapy at the, at the current time. It's actually difficult to get patients on BCMA targeted therapies. And so you have to actually, in my mind, take this person to therapy right away. Selenexor and Dex or PI plus Selenexor and Dex are a great option, but also in somebody that has low counts, you potentially can do cyclophosphamide-based induction therapy. And if you get this person in response, this person is 67, didn't have a transplant, you might consolidate them actually with an autologous transplant and be able to get some significant progression-free survival and then get them onto a BCMA-targeted therapy as their line after that. Right, right. And but, to, but, to, but echo, to Philippe? Yes. And yes, Brian, to echo um, uh, Thomas' point, I think that's, that's true that we are speaking about triple-class refractory or penta-refractory patients, and they are refractory to PIE meds and CD38 antibodies, but not all of them are refractory to alkylators. So we have to think, again, of using alkylators and cyclophosphamide 
is uh, definitely a good drug in this setting. And uh, as mentioned by Tom and by Vincent, if we can use high-dose methadone, that's definitely something that is feasible. I think I was thinking in the same line, if the patient has not received a transplant, the problem is that after five lines of therapy it will be difficult to collect the stem cells. But since methrophen is not an option, I think we need to reconsider again methadone. Methadone is an active drug, more active than cyclophosphamide. The problem is cytopenias, but I, I would consider in many of these patients, if I have not other options, an alkylator, definitely. Right, yes. Okay, well, thank you for that. Please welcome uh, Dr. Tom uh, Martin from UCSF, uh, San Francisco, and who's going to talk about the evolving role of BCMA-targeted therapies. Uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you, thank you, Brian. And Okay, this is a 77-year-old male presented with standard risk IgG kappa myeloma. Uh, beta-2 microglobulin was 3.2, and all other serum markers are relatively normal. Also as a hyperdiploid case, but had one Q gain. He's received four prior lines of therapy. And I do think in our charts now, we actually have to put in lines of therapy because insurers are looking at lines of therapy when we're looking down the road for BCMA-targeted therapies. So line one was RVD followed by Rev Maintenance. Line two is DARAPD. Line three, Carfilzomib Dex. And then line four, oral cyclophosphamide plus PD to try to recycle the pomalidomide. Now, he now presents with fatigue and low back pain, so four prior lines of therapy. The M protein is up at 2.5. Kappa light chain is about 150 milligrams per liter. He potentially has borderline hypercalcemia, and now you're considering therapy for this person. Essentially, all the pan panelists also say, let's refer for a BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapeutic. And I will tell you, like I said before, there is not universal access to these drugs. Based on the toxicity for belantamab mafidotin, the requirement of a REMS program, and a good collaboration with ophthalmology, and with IDASL, because right now there's limited manufacturing slots, and perhaps there's vector supply issues that limit our ability to use this CAR T-cell therapeutic. Belantamab mafidotin is now approved for use in patients who have refractory and relapse disease after receiving four prior lines of therapy. The response rate goes from 60% as a single agent to 32%. The duration of response is 13 months. It's actually quite long. And for me, these data support the use of, uh, of belantamab as a fifth-line therapy in patients that have triple-class refractory disease, especially if you don't have access to other BCMA-targeted therapies. Now, the problem, obviously, is ocular toxicity. We have Three-quarters of the patients having keratopathy by a slit lamp exam. We have half of the patients having actual ocular symptoms. Mostly it's blur vision and dry eyes. And we have 18% of patients that do have some visual change. Now, that happens to be reversible. And I do think that the ocular toxicity is manageable. You just have to follow these patients closely. You have to uh, use dose reductions, dose delays, and holding of the dose. You have to be on top of patients at, if, if, while they're receiving belantamab. Well, what about CAR T-cell therapy? The KARMA trial, this was published by Nikhil Munchi in New England Journal of Medicine, led to approval of IDA-cell overall response rate of 450 million cells of over 80%, with a PFS of 12 months. The patients who achieved a CR, a stringent CR, had a longer PFS of you know, over 20 months. In terms of CARs, the overall response rates Single agent, pretty amazing, right? 70 to 
there is more CRS, 70 to 90% CRS, mostly grade one or two. There are some grade three, and there's some neurotoxicity, about 20% to 30% neurotoxicity, mostly grade one and two, but some grade threes. Okay, let's talk about bispecific T-cell engagers. Showing overall response rates at single agents now between 50 and 83%. Amazing overall response rates. The CRS, that's the main toxicity. It actually is seen in about 40 to 70% of patients, but again, mostly grade one to do. And it actually seems it is much more indolent than CRS when you give somebody a CAR T-cell therapy. And so in terms of bispecifics, I think these have substantial future. So as of now, belantamab is actually the only easy and accessible BCMA-targeted therapy. It's easy for me because I have a collaboration with my ophthalmologist. It is off the shelf. If you can use it, it is a good drug. It's hard to wait for a CAR T-cell therapeutic or a bispecific trial slot on a patient that has active progressive disease. You got to treat these patients. Now, Idacel is the only BCMA-approved CAR, but we're hoping that in the you know, first or second quarter of next year that Siltacel will get approved and hopefully we have better access to CARs. And my final is, is that bispecifics will eventually command really the largest fraction of the market. I think local docs will be able to give this and all patients that come to the treatment center, like my center, an academic center, will have pre, uh, prior treatment of a BCMA targeted therapy. Beyond 2022, you know, we're gonna have all these available. Again, for fit patients, I would do a BCMA CAR first. In less fit patients, you choose an ADC or a bi-specific. Depends on what you can do and what you can give. And then if you have another agent down the road, you do another targeted therapy. Okay, well, uh, Tom, I have to say a very, very uh, comprehensive review of a very exciting uh, cellular bi-specific uh, monoclonal antibody therapies. Uh, questions or comments from the panel? Uh, Jesus, yes. Tom, I have a patient that is a 58-year-old, and I have the chance for this patient to offer VRD in a clinical trial, VRD or KRD, whatever it is, induction, followed by the CAR-T, or to go into the conventional approach. Thank you so much for that question. And I think uh, many people know that I, I've already, already bet my whole wine cellar that we are going to do VRD followed by a CAR T-cell, and we're, we are not going to be doing VRD and an autologous transplant five years from now. We are going to completely switch to CAR T-cell therapy in my mind. I do think that the responses are deeper, they're more durable, and I think it's much less toxic than autologous stem cell transplant. That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Very, very good. Philippe, maybe you can comment on this. How do you see the role of the bispecific versus the CAR-T? Uh, do you agree with Tom? Uh, we'll be looking at CAR-T first, or what do you think? No, I think that uh, Tom uh, really did a good job in uh, showing all the data available, and I agree with him. In fact, CAR-T, that's one shot, and uh, we have quite a long treatment-free interval uh, in patients that are very advanced. So I would favor CAR-T therapy first, and then subsequently a bispecific antibody with a different target if possible. But uh, Jesus uh, uh, highlighted a very important point. Do we think that bispecific antibodies or CAR-T cell therapy will replace uh, autologous stem cell transplantation uh, in the future? And you know that 
So we need to demonstrate, of course, uh, this uh, efficacy and this combination. But in Europe, we are going to start a study looking at VRD, daratumumab, and in MRD, negative patient, we are going to propose bispecific antibodies for these good risk patients. And then the next step will be potentially a randomized study comparing VRD-DARA stem cell transplantation versus VRD-DARA by specific antibody or VRD-DARA followed by a CAR T-cell therapy. But this is the way probably where we are going to, to go in the near future. Yes, and bispecifics are obviously a lot easier to manage in this kind of randomized trial setting. So, Jesus, what do you think? I think in a patient like the one that I propose, I will collect stem cells, but I will go for a CAR-T approach. Okay. But I will keep the stem cells for a backup. And yeah. the reason for this is because I agree totally with Tom that CAR-T induces much deeper responses. And it's associated with long, should be associated with longer PFS, particularly in the setting of a healthy T cells that we are going to use for these patients. But I will keep the stem cells for eventual relapse to use. Thank you, uh, Vincent. So we do have for triple class refractory patients, Belamas that is approved in Europe since August 2020. Uh, we are going to hear this year some a dose adaptation of Belamath, because currently the uh, dose of 2.5 every three weeks, many patients have to stop to discontinue because of this ocular toxicity uh, that was well uh, discussed by Tom. And uh, maybe we can use a reduced dose of Belamath or uh, the time interval should be different as compared with the three weeks. But this drug is active for sure. And uh, some patients are really benefiting from this uh, agent. Uh, CAR T-cell therapy, uh, you discuss about the uh, issue of uh, access uh, to this uh, uh, immunotherapy and uh, uh, definitely outstanding results with Siltacel. And we are all of us expecting to have a, a larger access in the future. Absolutely. So so I think we've reached uh, the, the witching hour here. So, But I'd like to just uh, sincerely thank Philippe and Jesus for uh, participating. Uh, thanks to Tom and uh, Vincent, as always. I think that um, between everyone, this has been a very comprehensive update, and certainly we hope it has been useful to our audience. So thank you to everyone. Thank you very much, Dr. Dury, Dr. Martin, Dr. Moreau, Dr. Rajkumar, and Dr. San Miguel. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Adapting Clinical Practice to a Rapidly Changing Therapeutic Landscape in Multiple Myeloma, and to download the PDF associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.